We've had, uh, just to, trying to do the math, people think I can't do math. I'm pretty good at math, scientific notation, everything. So wh where's Larry comes in, he loves to brag. What, 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 what's your, tr how much you got under management now at BlackRock? What is it? Seven, eight, something like that. It just keeps going up. Yeah. What, what, what is it? Because you manage it so well. What is it? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I watch what I have to do all, all day. It's up so there. I'm, I'm it, 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 it doesn't yeah, matter. It's, it's up so, uh, yeah. so Bitcoin bulls, Bitcoin bulls say 1%. Put, even just as a, as a hedge against money printing, put 1% into Bitcoin. I'm trying to figure out what 1% of $7 trillion would mean. Uh, for Bitcoin, that would be. Would, 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 what are you doing? Are you doing anything? Are you recommending anything? What's BlackRock uh, got in the in the works for Bitcoin? Or, or yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think crypto is uh, generally has gotten the imagination of a lot of people. I mean, having you know today the volatility of it is extraordinary. But listen, people are looking for storehouses of value. People are looking for places that could appreciate, you know, under the assumption that inflation moves higher and the debts are building. So, so yeah, so we've started to dabble a bit in, uh, into it. And, and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't put a number on the percentage allocation one should have. It depends on what the rest of your portfolio looks like. But listen, I've been, you know, I think you talked about one of your shows, you know, my sense is the technology has evolved and the regulations have evolved to the point where where uh, a number of people find that it should be part of the portfolio. And so, uh, so you know, that's what's driving the price up. What do you can you speak to to BlackRock's uh, eventual plans? What would you, what you what would you be recommending? Am I you're you're not as old as Mellon. You got a lot more money, but that's one of the oldest banks around. <laughs> they they saw fit to to make a comment. Where where would what do you think will will happen down the road? So I mean, I'm not in a position to make recommendation on that. So listen, I think I think some people holding it as a storehouse of value and diversifying your portfolio. Listen, the one thing I've I've owned. And I think somebody said on one of the uh, on the show I was on with you guys recently. You know, we're holding a lot more cash than we've held than we've held historically. It's because duration doesn't work, interest rates don't work as a hedge, and so diversifying into other assets makes 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 some sense. And so, you know, holding some portion of what you hold in cash and things uh, like crypto is um, you know seems to make some sense to me. But I, but I wouldn't I wouldn't espouse a certain allocation or uh, or target holding. If you dig, dig, dig with a shovel or a pick. In a mine, in a mine, in a mine, in a mine, where a million diamonds shine. We dig, 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 from early on to night. We dig, 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 dig up everything inside. We dig up diamond mines more, thousand rubies, sometimes more. But we don't know what we took them for. We dig, dig, dig. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is your co-host, Pierre Rochard. I'm joined with Michael Goldstein, a.k.a. Bitstein. Michael, how are you? Doing good. Still not tired of winning. 
it, you know, it invigorates, right? Every, every morning when I wake up and I see that green candle, uh, it reminds me that I'm alive. And today we have a special guest, Mason Chapa. Welcome, Mason. Hey, good to be on, Pierre and Michael. Um, I share the same sentiment. There's, there's nothing better than waking up to a green morning. It's, it's the greatest thing. <laughs> so Mason is the uh, CEO of Blockware Solutions, managing partner of Blockware Mining. And he's also on the advisory board with me at Riot Blockchain, which is one of the largest Bitcoin mining publicly traded companies out there. Um, so we wanted to have you on, first of all, because you recently put out a report that was bullish on Bitcoin and uh, now is, is, is vindicated. <laughs> yeah. Lucky times. But some call it luck, some call it tactful writing. It was very well written, well reasoned. Um, so do you want to walk us through that market outlook and kind of what was driving your thesis um, for, for why you're bullish at, the, at this point? Um, or at that point, I guess this was in January, but uh, not much has changed, right? It's still, uh, we're still in play. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and a, lot of our, a lot of our take drives from our core competency of being in Bitcoin mining. So I started mining in 2016. So a lot, of, a lot of our thesis and a lot of what you'll find in the report is from the perspective of a Bitcoin miner and a Bitcoin hodler. So we, we kind of mesh the two worlds, which gives us some excellent indicators um, that allows us to you know, put together such a report that, that provides reasoning as to the title of why we believe 2021 that 40,000 is only the beginning for, you know, US dollar price of Bitcoin. And, and we've seen that supported. There's several things that we can walk through within the report that we'll go through today, but, but really it's covered in six sections. We've seen a record demand for mining rigs. So just for those that want to understand what Blockware Solutions does, first and foremost, we're a leading ASIC broker and wholesaler of, of Bitcoin mining machines. So we've sold over 200,000 machines since inception. So if you map that to megawatt consumption alone, you're talking about you know hundreds of megawatts of equipment that we've sold over time. We also place that, that equipment that we sell to our clients in hosting facilities. So within block for mining, we actually operate a facility in Kentucky and we're laying ground in our second facility in Kentucky. Kentucky has been an awesome place to mine Recently, they're putting out a bill that I can cover later that's incentivizing miners um, to enter the space. And then we also, as well, uh, we're miners ourselves within both entities. Blockware Mining is going to have over 350 Panahash online by mid-March. And Blockware Solutions already also has about 25 Panahash and plans to expand. Um, so within the report, we'll talk about uh, the record demand for mining rates, which is an indicator for for a bullish Bitcoin segment, right? Miners are the most bullish Bitcoin participants in the world, in my opinion, because they're fully exposed to Bitcoin. They're investing billions of dollars into non-repurposable uh, repurposable Bitcoin mining rigs, right? You look at Riot ordering tens of thousands of machines. These are set to mine Bitcoin and they're not planning on reselling them. And they're hoping that they last anywhere from three to five years. And it's really interesting. We've seen those cycles last even longer. We're going to talk about how the uh, social social media market is an indicator right now that we haven't seen as much Bitcoin action within Google searches and looking across other mediums than, than we did in 2017. We're, we're sitting at about half the levels of, of searches and and across other mediums, half the levels of, of where we're at in 2017. So, you know, you can imagine when that ca catches up, 
that's that's what indicates retail is participating. So a lot of our thesis is driven around institutional participation. We're going to look at Bitcoin exchange activity, specifically looking at the rise of CME versus uh, other exchanges, other leading exchanges, and how that in indicates that institutions are driving this run, follow the smart money. We'll, we'll take a look at um, Bitcoin's growing dominance versus altcoins. During prior runs, you'll 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 see that altcoins, you know, take take a higher percentage. But we're seeing Bitcoin uh, reverse that trend and, and taking a higher dominance across the space. We'll talk about monetary policy, and we can compare the cycles, right? We're, we've really had you know three different cycles, and those are Bitcoin's very cyclistic because we have a having event that takes place. So we can perform analysis and and see how's how Bitcoin Bitcoin performs in each cycle. Look at all of the um, corrections that took place. Uh, look at the historical data that that took place within those cycles and and leverage that information to put predictions for bitcoin price in the future pierre you're muted yeah you're muted oh <laughs> uh, yeah that's not gonna work um so i was just saying that i would encourage our audience to uh, go to blockwaresolutions.com to find the report and to look at all these beautiful uh, charts that y'all put together and the, um, the 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 links out too that i think that you guys did a really well-researched job of um substantiating your thesis uh with uh lots of evidence out there and lots of data so um, I'm curious to, to hear more about Blockware um, solutions and mining and um, kind of the, you, you touched on it earlier. Um, how, how did you go about starting this company? Like what, uh, what inspired you? What's the genesis story, the origin story? Yeah, the inspiration originally came with the fact that my family came from a wood manufacturing background dating back to the 1970s. So my grandfather started a business in Bridgeton, Missouri. I grew up in St. Louis. So I saw in the factory that we had a warehouse with excess energy and excess space. And I was like, what can I do with this space? So I started researching servers, um, specifically selling data. And that took me down the rabbit hole of finding out an S, what an S9 was, right? Which was first manufactured in 2016. So I started looking into it, you know, late 2016. And then I started buying S9s and deploying them and mining them. And that was right before, you know, the frenzy. And I saw such trouble in that process, right? Ordering machines from China, hoping the machines show up three months later. At the time, Bitmain would only accept cryptocurrency as payment. You'd have to stay up till 3 a.m. to place the order. You'd have to hope that you, you know, Bitcoin didn't tank in price or, or Bitcoin cash, which they accepted as well, didn't take in price while you were waiting to place said order. You didn't know when the orders could take place. So we wanted to create a company that fixes fragmentation and, and, and was trusted and transparent, just charges a flat rate for these orders. And, and that's, that's what we launched in 2017. So I founded it with my former and land grade partner, Matt D'Souza, who passed away, unfortunately, in August 2017. He was one of my you know, very closest friends and was a, a huge driver in this company. And then Sam Sorzynski, who's our current CFO. Um, and, and from there, we just vertically integrated. We, we expanded and kept getting better and better relationships and sourcing. Um, people kept coming to us as, as the North American 
um, supplier of, of ASIC mining rigs. And then we you know, wanted to find a home for those. So we expanded with hosting placements. We, we saw the opportunity to run master nodes and staking nodes. And we launched you know, pools. We currently, we have a, a Bitcoin mining pool operating that has 315 penahash. So with, with each opportunity within mining, we wanted to encapsulate that within our company. And we just were able to keep you know, continuing that. And a lot of our messaging within all these companies is to bring hash rate to North America and bring Bitcoin into the hands of North Americans. We want to decentralize the network. We think it's really important that we do so. And we see a large amount of hash you know, outside of North America and a large amount of Bitcoin outside of North America. So we want to be the driver and, and messenger. Um, and a lot of that is why we write research as well, saying, hey, you know, this is what's happening. This is what we have to do. And it's a matter of national security. Yeah, I agree. And so you're 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 selling these rigs now. I guess two things come to mind. One is um, where do you buy them from, right? I think that most of them are made abroad. Um, and is that changing? Yeah. So we are. So right now we're we buy machines from directly from the manufacturers. So there's really only three manufacturers I'll work with right now. It's Bitmain. What's minor micro VT and Canon. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll place future orders where we prepay and secure the units. We mine some of the units within our entity block for mining, which is our self mining operation. And the glory of what we can offer is the ability for someone to come to us and be online and hashing within 48 hours. So we de-risk this use ordering and secondary market, which is a fascinating um, sector within this space. So future batches is new machines. Then you have the secondary market with this use, use machines. You'll see a lot of used machines you know, floating all around the world. So we, we do a good job of, of working with trusted suppliers in the used market, but we also ourselves are selling these used machines, right? So we can, someone can approach us and our model is we'll mine these machines and, and have them fully tested. And a retail client can come to us and say, I want to buy one machine and be online within 48 hours. We can make that happen. We can sell them the machine. We can sell them a hosting energy contract. We can have them double full account and they will be mining within 48 hours. Um, and, and as far as sourcing goes, our channels just have increased over time. We've, we, we partnered and worked with some of the largest farms in the world. Um, I started working with Riot, you know, I think in 2018 when they were trying to do some upgrade cycles. And that's a lot of times the public companies come to us when they need to do these upgrade cycles, right? In preparation for getting newer equipment. And, and there's always a market for these used machines, right? We sold like tens of thousands of S9s that funneled down from Canada and the USA to Venezuela where there's cheap power. But, you know, if you mine in Venezuela, you have political and governmental risks. Um, mining really just requires a perfect cocktail of everything going perfectly. Uh, if you're mining in, in foreign countries where, you know, in, in a communist society or in a place where there's political concerns, they can just seize your operation at any point in time. Um, the USA, it's not going to happen. That's why we, you know, we love setting up shop here and we think it's going to be a hub for future mining. You mentioned uh, older generations of miners being used um, S nines. Um, so, how do wh why is it that they are not completely obsolete? Right, given that uh, advances in uh, ASIC technology. Well, it, it's 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 tied to what's happening in Bitcoin, right? Historically, in bull runs, you'll see actually that Bitcoin price outpaces difficulty. So for those that don't understand what difficulty is, difficulty is correlated to how fast a block is mined. 
So anything over under 10 minutes is gonna, is gonna trigger a correction in difficulty and it's either gonna increase or decrease if the speed of, the, of a block beam mine increases or decreases. Typically those adjustments take place every 10 days. So what we see during Bitcoin bull cycles is Bitcoin price historically during each um, of these bull runs and, and you know, especially the year after having outpaces difficulty. So that allows an S9 to capture the appreciation and the difference between difficulty and Bitcoin price. And it's, and, and it's fascinating that the, the S9 was um, built in 2016 and is still running, right? But keep in mind during that 2016 to 2021 run, S9s were not always profitable. In March of 2020, right, we saw several large farms and institutions puke their S9s. And then you saw large companies and, and Venezuelans perk up and say, oh, we'll take those. We'll take those for 15 to $25. The current price of an S9, because they're so profitable now with Bitcoin you know, above 47,500, and I haven't looked in the last hour, I'm sure it's even higher. They're, they're profitable at a break-even price of over 15 cents, which is fast, which is amazing. They're profitable at above hosting rates. They, they are highly demanded. And what you saw is institutions and, and, and countries with, with very cheap energy suck up all of the, the supply. So now they're very hard to find. Um, and, it, and, and this is a good indicator to show that new machines now may last not only through this halving, but through the next halving and potentially even the next halving after that. We're seeing you know, S19s by Bitmain are extremely high quality. I call those the new S9 of the world. S9 was a very high quality machine that's just gonna run forever. You could run at the bottom of the ocean. I've heard of companies that wanna place them in, in the ocean as, as with immersion coolant. The S19 is the same way. It's, it's, it's a very well-built machine and should last a long time. Yeah, I was worried that Bitcoin mining was not going to boil the oceans, but now that to, to, to immerse them into the ocean, I think that we'll finally be able to do that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was wondering, like, I, I, I get the funniest calls, like, every week. People come to us creative ways of with Bitcoin mining. They come and pitch to us, and they're, they're great. You know, landfill conversion into energy, right? Building Bitcoin mines right next to landfills. And that's a huge problem. There's so much waste. And if you can build a, a mine that converts waste into a Bitcoin, and then there's also, you also get paid for disposing of the waste. It's a two-way street. Amazing. But, you know, the, the CapEx on that is like $12 million to set up a one megawatt waste mining landfill. Long-term, it may work. Um, then I, you know, get a couple calls of these companies that want to deploy miners in the ocean. I'm like, why, why don't you put these in like a lake or, or, or a controlled setting? Like, it, like space in the, and the ocean is just such like a, a harsh space, right? With salt corrosion and, and waves and, and all sorts of stuff. Why not just stick this in the lake in the Midwest? I don't, I don't know where, what these ideas come from and, and why people are doing them, but some of them work and some of them don't. And that's what you see. <laughs> what are your thoughts on space mining, mining in space? <laughs> I mean, I, I, it could certainly happen. And when you talk about space mining, are you, are you talking about like mining gold from an asteroid or mining Bitcoin in space from like a satellite? <laughs> mining Bitcoin in space, specifically uh, using solar power, you know, maybe having a whole yeah. distance sphere around the uh, sun. I think it's feasible. I mean, it's feasible and especially as technology improves. But, but what you'll see is we, we saw a huge increase in efficiency and, and a huge jump in chips if you look if you look the jump that took place from let's say 2019 to 2020 we were on 16 nanometer and we jumped all the way to 7 nanometer 
you won't see a nine nanometer jump in the ASIC market ever again, because if you know how chip and chip, the chip bidding process and manufacturing process takes place, you know, it's, it's typically a one nanometer move um, and, and we're still manufacturing on seven nanometer. So if, if, if the power density and these machines become so powerful then, and deploying them in the space with solar energy becomes feasible, why not? But, but I can only imagine the cost of setting up a mine in space is going to be in the range of like 50 million plus dollars. So why not deploy on earth where it makes a lot more sense? Yeah, there's lower hanging fruit for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it brings to mind what, what, one of the um, arguments I make in favor of Bitcoin's issuance being fair is that it's fairer than gold in the sense that um, like South Africa has lots of gold, right? I, I think that every country in the world has some kind of like economical electricity source, almost every country. And it's electricity is electricity production is far more fairly distributed than gold production is. And thus Bitcoin mining is fairer than gold mining from kind of a geographic perspective. Would you agree? I I hundred percent agree. And, and the way that the gold supply chain works if you ever have watched any of the documentaries and what takes place in the mining in Africa, it is extremely unfair. You know, people lose their lives um, just like you, you see with blood diamond, right? Like I, we should call it, you know, blood gold, the same type of um, processes take place. There's, there's a, there's a whole underground market for gold. There's questioning of, you know, gold being minted that shouldn't have been minted or, or, you know, marked legitimate by, you know, U.S. gold um, markers or, or, you know, minters, right? Um, and then all, a lot of that funnels through Miami. Um, so I totally agree with you. I, you know, I, I view Bitcoin as cleaner um, and, a, you know, and, and a scarcer asset, right? Um, the scarcity and digital gold narrative, you know, I'm, I'm totally aligned with your outlook there. And, and how, how was it as a miner going through having, I mean, it must be a mixed blessing, right? <laughs> So for, I mean, it is a mixed blessing and going through having is a tough thing for a miner. You need to cut costs. You may need to sell off machines. You, you have to get nimble and lean and mean. You have to reduce your operational expenditures. You may have over leveraged prior in hopes of this, of this having, you know, cycle, um, you know, pushing out one way or the other. Uh, typically you'll see miners, you know, capitulate leading up to the halving, right? Where they're selling off all their old equipment for, for whatever prices they can get so they could rapidly upgrade. And that provides opportunity for, for people that are well positioned with, with cheap energy and, and they're ready for, you know, with their capital. You see strategically some of the largest miners, you know, set up capital in preparation for people capitulating their miners right before the halving cycles. And they'll just suck up all the supply. And those that did so in, you know, right before the halving in 2020, prospered, right? They, they got S9s for cheap prices. They got S17s, they got S15s, they got S11s, they got the T3s, the T2s, they got all the old Canon machines. They, and all those machines, they mine them. And now they, all those machines have like 10X in price. Um, minor supply constraint is at its all time high. And I've never seen anything like this, right? And that's an, also an indicator for a bullish market. If I wanted to order a new machine from Bitmain or What's Miner, I will have to wait seven months. And if I'm a retail participant, 
they won't even entertain my me asking. You know, you need to be a larger buyer. And that, that's why a lot of time people come to us. We can sell off, you know, one unit from our future batch, right? Having those relationships really help. But, and then, you know, post having, right? You're, you hope that Bitcoin is going to rise quickly. We didn't see that. We saw a slow increase, but we had a, a future outlook, right? We, we had our data and we, we saw the historical um, correlation between Bitcoin prospering very well after the halving, usually it's the year after the halving. So in, in those timeframes, for example, their self-mining operation, we were accumulating, right? We were buying machines, we were holding on to Bitcoin, and we were pushing through, hoping for exactly what happened, right? Bitcoin took off, difficulty uh, didn't, you know, difficulty at the halving did adjust. There was huge corrections. There was like a 16% difficulty correction. And that, that was something that we forecasted and then it, it, it trailed off and now it's, you know, rebounding and for the next six months, I think it's you're going to see some of the some of the best times in mining. You know, we know the supply that's coming into the states and or, or and around the world because the manufacturers can only produce so much. We believe all the old machines are plugged in right now already, and so I don't see difficulty rising too much over the next six months. And I and I'm bullish and just like you are, I think Bitcoin is going to outpace difficulty at a higher level than it is now. And maybe the other uh, revenue driver would be transaction fees going up uh, on chain. And um, I don't know, they've, they've stayed low for this cycle, right? If we compare it to like December 2017. Um, but uh, maybe maybe they'll go up when we hit 100K. <laughs> I know. It depends how, yeah, it depends how you like measure transaction fees, right? While they've stayed low in the Bitcoin denomination, in the USD value of those bitcoin mining rewards they're actually high like block rewards i looked yesterday were like 7.6 when you bake in transaction fees that's incredible in in mid in the later stages of last year uh, block rewards or transaction fees were like nine um were, were a reward of nine um bitcoin per block that is amazing for a miner um, so, so to, to kind of do the math on that the, the block subsidy, the new Bitcoin being created is 6.25 Bitcoin. And so if we're at 7.6 Bitcoin, that means that like 1.5 uh, Bitcoin of transaction fees with every block on average. Exactly. And for those, for those that may ask, transaction fees are grouped in blocks. So when a miner validates the block, they share the transaction fees that are included in that block. So that's exactly right. Um, and that's, that's a... And people ask about the future of mining, right? Let's say we look three halvings away, 6.5 divided by two, right? Then you go to 3.125 divided by two, then you're at 1.06125 divided by two, then you're at 0.53, you know, six. And my math is pretty close there. Um, so what what is the future of miners in, in 12 years, you know, in 12, 16 years when we're three, four halvings deep? We're going to be living off, transaction fees and our hope is that you know at that point bitcoin is to the moon and those transaction fees are going to be highly valuable um, and same with even living off those smaller block rewards but what you're going to see in in the space is a race to the bottom on cost it's a race to the bottom on energy and that's why you're seeing the large miners um, position and be prepared and, and target the cheapest energy in the world um, and that's that's what we're gonna see. <laughs> what is the cheapest energy in the world? Well, the cheapest energy in the world is gonna be 
likely clean energy. Um, solar, the people that are positioning in solar now and and parlay that with a battery storage of said energy um, with with the newest battery technology that's coming out and being able to store it. Because one, one of the issues with solar is, yeah, I can get power for, you know, consistently for, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. But what, what am I doing with those other eight, you know, eight to, um, you know, 10 hours? You're storing that excess solar consumption into batteries and that the battery is then running overnight. And because with mining, you want your machines to be running 24 seven, especially during a bull market. During a bear market, you could get away with the other half, right? Um, you will also see other creativities with um, companies that are able to leverage off-peak agreements and, and sell excess energy or, or turn off their mines during um, peak hours um, that are you know, deployed around cities. Let's say you're outside of Austin and Austin requires uh, excess energy between 6 and 10 p.m. every night. And they can sell the energy that they consume at their mine for a higher value than they're paying for it. And so they'll just shut off their miners. And, and there's people that live off peak energy agreements and they do this every night. I mean, and those that are domiciled outside of a city get amazing peak hour um, off sale agreements. If you look at the energy market of Texas, the entire energy market of Texas lives off the profits they make in July and August. That is when in Texas, uh, energy requirements are at their highest, energy spikes are at their highest. And you see these energy commodity traders just floored and loving life because they're selling their really cheap cost energy at high levels um, during those months. So you just see creativity. That's how people survive. I think clean energy with wind, with solar, with hydro, um, those have the lowest costs and you'll see, you'll see a lot of that. And I think Bitcoin gets a lot of bad press and uneducated press saying that it's bad for the environment. It's actually the opposite. We're stabilizing your, your city energy rates. We're over 60% on some research I've read recently and, and I've looked and I've worked closely with like Cambridge, I think they're leaders in identifying um, where the energy sources are. Over 60% is renewable energy um, and with you know the stabilization of energy rates and off peak, like miners are good for overall energy consumption in the world. And you know, that's something I wanted to call out that I think is mis, uh, miswritten about consistently by certain mediums. Yeah. So one of the other um, criticisms other than the environmental one is this idea that um, if it, you mentioned, you know, with the halvings uh, and uh, with the lower block reward, that eventually um, Bitcoin's transaction finality is going to suffer because there's not going to be a strong enough incentive for miners and we'll see, you know, state actors uh, censoring Bitcoin or trying to uh, do reorgs and undermine Bitcoin by you mentioned that they're already seizing mining equipment in in uh, in, in Venezuela, but um, you know obviously these these folks are coming up with scenarios that are on a grander scale. Um, do you, do you, do you think there's any tr truth to that? Like, what do you, what do you think about those kind of uh, fictitious scenarios? Yeah, I mean, some of those fictitious scenarios have played out. Um, if you look at uh, in upstate New York, the moratorium that was placed on um, where the it was a region in New York that um, that I'm blanking on the exact region that um, put a moratorium on specifically targeting miners, where they were they thought that their miners were you know taking all the energy and increasing their prices and tried to push them out. Um, the same happened in Washington D.C. The same was was um, thought to ha and has happened in Washington State. Um, it's happened in other states, right? 
And then there's the reverse. There's state, there's other states that are like, we want miners to come here, like Kentucky being an example of that. Hey, we're going to incentivize miners to come here. BC, a uh, bigger picture, we've got a lot of excess energy that needs to be utilized anyways, and um, there's tax gains that we can have from it. Um, so I think you'll see state by state competition, and, and some are going to take the position of, we don't like mining, we think it's bad for the environment, we don't want them consuming our energy, and some states are going to be like, we like mining, we think it's, we think it, it is not having a good environmental impact. I mean, it has a good environmental impact and we want the tax dollars and, and we want the, you know, work in the jobs created from miners within the, their states. So it'll be interesting to your fictitious, you know, scenario of which states take what, right? And, you know, I think Kentucky and Texas are very miner friendly. For example, you know, a lot of Midwest areas like Tennessee is becoming a nice mining hub. Um, Washington state always has been, but the amount of players up there has decreased because there's fear that, you know, energy prices would be raised across the board. Um, California has not been a good state to mine in because energy there is so expensive. Um, people just pay residents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are some specific stuff that uh, Kentucky has done to incentivize y'all to be there? Yeah, so uh, tax incentives, first and foremost, uh, reducing the amount of taxes that we pay related to profits and um, incentivizing um, us with offering compensation. If we have employ over 10 employees, offering a set amount of compensation per employee over 10 people, um, incentivizing us with lowering um, the costs um, associated with um, the land, um, giving us favorable energy agreements, you know, and, and, and you know, politically, um, knowing that you're in an environment where you won't be shut down. That is like as a miner that you can sleep at night, right? Um, I've heard of horror stories and even in Ohio, for example, where um, politically everything looked good. And then suddenly the rug was taken out from underneath a couple operations there because the politics didn't line up. Um, so like, you know, I always say this, you need the perfect cocktail with mining. You need a really good energy relationship. You need good politics. You need really good staff. And, and operations and, and you need really good messaging so that you can continue to have all three of those things aligned. That ultimately blows up the team that you have in place and, and, and closely working with um, all those individuals that participate in each of those sectors. Yeah, the, the differences between states that you highlighted really <laughs> to me highlights that the, the idea that governments are going to cooperate to attack Bitcoin is total fantasy that yeah. they have no incentive to cooperate. It's total fantasy. Um, we can talk about Canada too. I mean, Canada, you see a lot of, um, you know, I work with a lot of companies in Canada, you see a lot of, you know, we didn't talk about natural gas, but natural gas mining is also another, you know, very cheap way um, to, to mine. If you set up on, you know, near a natural gas site, the Crusoe Capital is a very well-known entity that, that does so. Um, you'll, you'll probably see, um, you know, and in Canada, you'll, Alberta is like the natural gas hub. So there's a lot of sites that are doing that. Um, you see a lot of hydropower, you know, just south of Montreal, which is, um, you know, there's a couple of public companies placed there. Um, and, and you see a good environment in Canada, right? You know, we talk about, we haven't talked about this yet, but there's environmental factors with mining. Deploying miners in Texas, you, it's so hot there. Um, there's humidity in certain regions. If you're close to water, you get salt corrosion, which damages the miners. So how do you mitigate the environmental factors? Well, 
maybe you could deploy, you know, older machines that you don't really care if they die out and they're, they're, they can survive a little better in those harsh climates. The newer machines are super temper sensitive and finicky. Like you can't, and the S19 without sitting next to an air cooler kind of work. That's when immersion mining and technology takes place, right? You, you immerse the miners and with coolant solutions into water and that takes out them being exposed to all of those environmental factors. Um, so with the technology improving, you can really deploy anywhere. Um, you know, we could be mining in the deserts um, of Nevada, you know, in the Nevada and California region, region with immersion cooling. It works. Well, usually I, th I think of uh, electronics as not mixing particularly well with liquids. Why, why does immersion cooling work? And I know it's a stupid question, but um, I'm sure plenty of people are wondering. <laughs> It's all about the coolant solution. So there's, there's, and, and all the top immersion miners are very protective of their intellectual property. And each of them have their own um, reasoning of why they're the best. And, and first and foremost, it, it's the coolant solution. So there's this liquid coolant solution that you put around the miner that protects it from water. Therefore water cannot enter the machine and it's a magical solution. Or, or that protects the miner and allows it to be immersed. And then you, you strip down the miner. You, you don't need its casing. Um, you, you don't need uh, certain other elements. So it's just like the board and control board and um, a couple other pieces in this, in this water solution. And then it really comes down to the final piece of which is the software and the firmware. Um, you need to auto-tune the chips differently um, and, and break the firmware essentially that's provided out of the package from miners so that you can um, get more efficiency and get more and overclock the machines as well. Because when they're, when you take out all of the, you know, environmental factors associated with a miner and naturally also for manufacturers, they, they, the base firmware that they put on the machines um, is at a conservative level. Cause they don't want you to plug these things in and they're just set on overclock and they blow out. You can overclock and get better efficiency and immersion. So that was a long winded answer to your question, but it's, it's, proprietary solutions that allow these miners to be immersed in water and and how it, what it looks like and if you're picturing this and we have you know some pictures we can share if anyone's interested they're like these giant sinks with water hookups you know tied to them and there's miners emerging in each sink and then there's just lines and rows of these sinks instead of racks there's just all these sinks like in and it can be one you know giant <laughs> bath on each side you know and there's containerized immersion solutions which are mobile um, that are developed and um, really for me with immersion I saw this technology you know people started working on it three years ago as focused on mining and it was just so expensive but now you know it, the cost has come down so it's become viable and there's companies like Microsoft for example that have been deploying their graphic cards and and you know for AI purposes in immersion for a number of years. Um, so this is proven and the use case for ASICs makes sense. And immersion is certainly going to have a nice place in the future of, of mining. As you were describing that, I was thinking of uh, the matrix when they have uh, people inside of immersion. <laughs> uh, anyway, but that's different. That's different. This is, I was thinking, I was thinking of like a Lovecraftian horror thing of like, you know, the AI overlords rising from the depths of the oceans. Yeah, we could immerse humans in this coolant solution and live in the water. <laughs> with like in Harry Potter, you know, they eat the gillyweed and, uh, and then we're set. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and so what, what do you think is, is next for, for the mining industry? Um, is it uh, more of the, what the trends that you, you've been seeing so far, or do you think that there's um, something big, you know, with the Samsung uh, plant coming to the U S uh, bigger picture on the macro level? What, what, do you have some visions? I certainly do. I think, um, I think there'll be manufacturers that enter the States um, seeing that, news release was something I saw for coming. Um, there's always rumors and winds that, you know, X manufacturer is going to set up a mining or manufacturing facility in X state in the States, or even in Canada would be nice. Um, hasn't taken place yet, but maybe they're building, you know, people like to be very secretive, especially miners like to be, you know, very protected and secretive. Uh, I find myself in conversations where I'm just entirely talking to an alias and I, I, I don't, I still don't even know who they are. And I have, you know, several hundred clients, you know, there's a portion of them like that are secretive and non KYC Bitcoin, you know, all that stuff. Fine. Yeah. I support you. But you know, the future of mining is we'll, we'll continue to see technology improvements. We'll see people um, flock to where they can find the cheapest energy and, and good politics. We'll see, um, we'll see companies, um, try to enable um, North American mining. We'll see manufacturing companies, you know, start to not only be concentrated in China. Um, and I'm talking to other uh, entities already that are not domiciled in China. And you think about a big, you know, a big thing that North American miners have to face, or United States specifically, is if you're buying machines from China directly, you you have a 25% tariff and a 2.77% duty on top of the price you have to pay and shipping costs per machine is like $150. So that, you know, if you're looking at ROI, you add on all those costs on top of, you know, the cost of the miner itself. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking to see those type of barriers, you know, disperse um, and things to become a little just more efficient across the board, you know, as, as things get, um, as hash rate grows, as competition rises, um, you'll see the larger players um, succeed, those with the cheapest energy. You'll see a lot more efficiency. Uh, right now, we're in just such a market where efficiency doesn't matter. Um, anywhere you can buy machines is great. Um, you're mining and the profits are off the charts. You know, you know, people aren't concerned about all these factors. You know, the tariff duty is not a problem. You know, I'm going to make that back in four months. Like, um, so. Those are tariffs set by the U.S., right on trade wars yeah yeah so i i, I want to say something against <laughs> tariffs here because it really shows one of the problems with tariffs is that um that suppresses u.s mining yes and yeah. so while it, in theory it would incentivize manufacturing in the u.s of these mining rigs in practice just as you said the tariffs get paid we get less mining in the U.S. and we still don't have mining manufacturing because we we just don't have that comparative advantage. We don't have that, that you know, that, that, that expertise and the capital, you know, it's, it's a very specific uh, thing that they've learned how to do for, for years now. Uh, so it's kind of delusional to think that, oh, because there's a tariff, I'm magically going to start doing this entirely different activity. And then you complain that uh, mining is so-called centralized in China. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's fascinating when you think about if you even trace back to what happened with the United States and chip manufacturers, and, and you and you take a you take a look back in history. The United States were leaders in chip design and intellectual property as it relates to chip design. We would send the designs of our chip to countries like China. 
that can manufacture them very cheaply and you know, with cheap labor and cheap everything, they would manufacture our chips and send them to us. Um, and, and you can read about some of the stuff that's happened over the years with like the, the spy implants and chips that took place in like DC, even in the Pentagon. And that's because we're, we're still manufacturing our blueprints over there. So like we were the intellectual property leaders. And then what slowly happened is they just stole our intellectual property. So we need a reverse trend. We need, you know, we need our technologists to hold on to their intellectual property, keep that within the United States, manufacture here. Um, improve on our IP. You know, historically, the USA has always been a technology and IP leader, but we're just giving it away to other countries with cheap manufacturing just to reduce costs. Let's, you know, keep it here. Let's figure out how to, you know, we're at a level where we know how to optimize things. We know how to reduce costs. These practices should not be taking place anymore. And, and that can be answered with US manufacturing. Um, we need to bring technologists to back to the states, you know, that's a big issue within blockchain in general. Like a lot of the greatest uh, blockchain engineers and software developers are not domiciled in the states. We need to change that. And a lot of that is governmentally related, right? With the US's positioning on the sector as a whole. Um, there's a lot at hand here and we, we need to reverse that trend. Otherwise we're just gonna be smoke on the last, left in the dust, right? Well, maybe the Biden administration will uh, get rid of those tariffs, um, but I hope yeah, so. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how um, I don't know how warm they're going to be towards uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Although it sounds like Yellen has softened her stance already, where she's like, "Yeah, it's Bitcoin's okay. It's just it's been used by terrorists." <laughs> it was like, yeah, I'm just, oh, what was that? What did that come out yesterday? I saw that. Yeah. She's like, yeah, it's just like it's been used by terrorists and like uh, the dark web and all this stuff. Like, okay, yeah, you get it. The Silk Road was a long time ago. You know, that yeah. was well documented. <laughs> and Bitcoin also skyrocketed after it shut down. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was like I, two I weeks it, later, we were hitting new all time highs. It was, uh, yeah. you know, in many ways, it was suppressing the price by, uh, you know, people thinking they need to buy drugs instead of HODL. Yeah. And then you have like, you know, Tim Draper who came in and, you know, the government had like a free auction and he bought like all of that Bitcoin for such a cheap price. And he became a billionaire from that. And he just holds. And um, I was watching him speak the other day and he, he pays his entire organization in Bitcoin. I think it's fascinating. He's like, everything's tracked on blockchain. The, the whole, the whole ecosystem's audited. Um, I don't need to have accountants or staffing because you could just track the blockchain everything is accounted for you can see how much i paid them you can see when i paid them it all flows accordingly um it minimizes the amount of staff that i need um my employees are very happy with it and 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 you know he he, he wants to put his bitcoin to use and i think there's many individuals that are you know that have bitcoin at those levels that feel the same thing they want to take their bitcoin and invest it as a vc instead of using fiat they want, you know, there's, it's all traceable and trackable. It's like this, it's a new financial system that's here. Why aren't we using it for these use cases? Like, I think I loved his um, thoughts there. And I was thinking the same thing. Awesome. Well, on that note, Bitstein, unless you have any other questions, we're going to, we're going to close it out as we uh, reach the top of the hour here. Yeah, I have, well, I have one, um, which is, you know, as we're entering this bull run, I've remembered from past bull runs, there is a real feeling of this thing can just go on forever. Like, I don't know where this could possibly stop. I thought 
a hundred thousand was potentially possible during the uh, last bull run. Um, so we have all of these indicators of where the market is going and why forty thousand was not just the beginning. Is there anything special we can learn from the uh, mining industry to watch out for indicators? It's like okay, we're kind of reaching uh, the top of this thing, um, and we're going to level off and, and crash a bit. Yeah, and a, a, you know, a, one of you know the, the conclusions of our report is finding out when retail enters and there's indicators that can help you understand um, when retail enters. Cause that, you know, you know, in, with human psychology and within, you know, looking at different cycles, when retail enters, it's usually towards the top and there's different indicators, you know, tracking the, the wallet addresses, tracking um, the institutional volume, you know, institutions are driving this run and that's, you know, a factual, right. We look at all, you know, what sailors done, what must have done all, you know, all that stuff. Don't even go into it. Uh, you look at hash rate at some point, you know, when hash rate, you know, if hash rate three or four X is this year and, and, and mining is still wildly profitable, then we're likely getting close to that point where, you know, we should see corrections. We've only had uh, really two corrections so far in the cycle. In 2017, we had seven sizable corrections that were above 26%. Um, there needs to be more corrections. You know, there needs to be that shift of institutional to retail. Um, and then you can kind of try to understand when, you know, we, we see, you know, a feasible drop and, and that's, you know, that's, you know, retail hasn't entered. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see a push um, and, and understanding when retail enters should give us some um, insight into when we start to see corrections, but I'm, you know, I'm very bullish on Bitcoin in general, and, and I've never seen anything like this before in compared to prior bull runs in, in the world. So, I, you know, I'm almost at a position like, when will this stop? I question that myself. <laughs> the forever. One million, one million Bitcoin. You heard it here. <laughs> yeah. One million Bitcoin. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I would say, I mean, we, we just a, a quick analysis. So like the year after the halving, the average return after the halving is 3,082%. Um, and that, that's looking at the historicals. So, I mean, if you take 30,000 as a basis point, you know, that's 700K based on, you know, data. <laughs> 700k this year i don't you know, like i said don't quote me on that but you know what's more feasible you know 100 150k conservative i, I think is very feasible parabolas are parabolic yeah. that's the thing right? yeah. it's very hard to read them about um before we actually see the ticker <laughs> exactly I, I mean peter brand threw out a funny tweet before he closed he was saying like signs that were you know this this bubble's about to pop like my neighbor was asking me about bitcoin like my family is asking me how to buy bitcoin so, like, you know people that i haven't talked to in fifth, like 10 years are, are asking me like what's bitcoin you know how do i get in those are those are personal indicators that you know retail is coming <laughs> they they might also be signs that the fiat bubble is popping oh yeah i I so. don't have a doubt. I mean, if you look at economic fiscal policy and we're pegged against oil right now, you know, that's not going to last. And Biden administration oil is going to go up. Deflation is going to continue to happen. If we look what happened with the petro gold, um, U.S. to gold, and eventually the whole world finding out that the U.S. didn't have enough gold treasury um, to to have value to the U.S. dollar to happen. That was the collapse of the petro design. You know, same is going to happen with is our current uh, fiscal and economic monetary policy. You know, there's going to be a change um, that's going to shake things up. So, you know, deflation is real. And that's why Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoin's a great counter in inflation. You know, we'll all continue to say it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, where can people find you, Mason? So uh, blockwarsolutions.com. That is, uh, we have reach out forms there. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Clubhouse. I'm trying to get more involved with Clubhouse. I think that's an awesome uh, place to participate. Um, Telegram, um, reach out. Um, website's the easiest way, and then we can funnel through and get discussing and, and talk about the opportunities, especially as they're money related. And if you have any questions, you know, check out our report, check out our prior reports. A lot of really good stuff we put out over time. Sounds good. Yep. Um, on, on Twitter, he is at Mason, uh, M-A-S-O-N. That one's easy. The last yeah, name yeah. underscore Jappa, J-A-P-P-A. And right. uh, so go follow Mason and stay up to date on what's going on in the mining industry. Uh, you know, it's only going to get bigger from here. And uh, it's, it's I, I see it as like, it's in some ways it, it lags Bitcoin's growth, but Ultimately, it has to track it, um, and so uh, it's it's very exciting uh, to to see uh, that industry grow, and um, especially with with Riot. Obviously, we're both on the advisory board. Yes. And we're both excited to see their their growth this year. Yeah, I'm really excited for Riot, um, and I'm really excited for some of the initiatives that we're working on this year, and that that'll bring some North American uh, allegiance that I think is much needed. Um, more to come on that. Yeah, we'll, we'll have you back on as that develops. Yes, sir. Well, it was a pleasure, gents. Um, really enjoyed it, Pierre and, and uh, Michael. We will definitely be back on. Um, and then I thought we had a great session. Sounds good. Thanks, Mason. See you soon. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Training is important. Yes. Uh, he breaks down here, organization for unit training. Training plans comprehensible and workable plans are indispensable and should be formulated with consideration of the following four essentials establish training goals that's number one number two continuous evaluation this process must go on throughout the training cycle and as an integral part of it only by continuous evaluation can deficiencies be discovered early enough to make immediate correction possible number three testing Closely related to evaluation is the more formal testing that is given to an individual or unit at the conclusion of a phase of training or block of instruction. It's here that we determine whether our training goals have been met. Number four, remedial training. I must emphasize here the value of remedial or makeup training. Once once evaluation and testing have identified the areas of deficiency, remedial training must be used to correct them. It should be an integral part of every training schedule. Of course, the instruction will be designed to overcome specific weaknesses that have been exposed by the testing program and will have to be keyed to the specific needs of your unit. It is essential, however, that remedial training be regularly scheduled. Gosh, that makes sense. So those are the four things, established training goals, continuous evaluation, testing, and remedial training. What were the, was there a test, were there tests at each phase of Top Gun as you were going through the training? Yeah, absolutely. What, what was an example of a test? The most common test that we give is that we'd want to make sure the students understood the mechanics of a system. So how a missile system worked, how the targeting system worked, how the radar system worked. You had, we wanted to make sure they understood the mechanics of it before they used it in in practical terms. It probably isn't too much different than, than your experience of understanding how the radios worked before you were right. using them in the field. Right. You had to understand HF propagation. Yeah, you did. You it, had to understand the ionosphere. You, you, you absolutely did because what would happen is 
you're going to find yourself in a position, and this is me, I don't know, I wasn't in that position, is if you're in a particular geography, a particular place, and talking to a particular other person, some radio is going to work better than other radios. This is true. And you might need to know, hey, you know what? We're like in the bushes here or in the, in the, in the wilderness or in the jungle. This radio doesn't work here. It doesn't penetrate through this. This thing. So there's a million different examples of that. If you get that out of order and you just work, you, you learn how to maneuver the system. Like I, my, my cursor moves it here and I, I move my, my cursor on the display here. And you don't actually know what's happening to the mechanics behind that. You're going to start making mistakes inside in specific settings. Oh, it worked here, so it must work everywhere. Like, no, it doesn't work everywhere. This environment is optimized for here. This environment, it doesn't work at all. And if all you know is the mechanics and not what's happening behind it, you actually can't apply it when it matters the most. You know what that made me think of? The book Leadership Strategy and Tactics by me. Because <laughs> I say that exact same thing. When I'm talking, I compare, I compare a leader to a woodworker and talk about the fact that you know, when you're a leader, you got to know the different tools, but then you got to, if you're a woodworker, you got to know the different tools and then you got to know the different types of wood. And then you got to know how to apply those different type, those different tools to different types of wood. And then you got to realize that even each individual piece of wood, a piece of pine is super soft. A piece of oak is super hard. You got to use those tools differently with those different types of wood. And then on top of that, each individual piece of pine is different. It has a knot, it has a rift, it has a cut, it has a split, and you gotta know how to deal with that. So you gotta understand the principles of the tools. I may regularly plagiarize the hell out of that book, by the way. <laughs> Check. Uh, talks about assignment of administrative tasks. He talks about when a unit is under strength. Reduced strengths must be offset by more efficient utilization of men and equipment. Now, you know, I got asked this question today by a client. Yeah, but you know, we, we, don't, we, don't, we need more people. Guess what? Everybody, everybody needs more people. We got visited by a senior ranking officer in the SEAL teams when we were in Ramadi. And, and Leif likes to tell the story. The, the you know, great, great officer, huge supporter, says, hey, do, what else do you need out here? Is there anything else you need? And I said, I need two more task units worth of men. <laughs> you know, like we need, we had enough missions yeah. to, to get everybody busy. But guess what? We didn't get anybody. We didn't, you know, like that's the way it works. Um, next, next little section, inject realism. The experienced commander knows that soldiers do in combat exactly what they have been taught and have practiced in training. Therefore, each training situation and problem must be as valid and realistic as possible with unreal or artificial aspects eliminated. Training must reflect as many of the conditions, scenes, noises, and situations of the battlefield as ingenuity can conceive and safety rules will permit. And I remember, I remember I'd put on, we'd be doing, when I got back from my last deployment, when we, when we got back from Ramadi and I took over training, a few months into that, when you would put on your nods at night, you would you might as well be in Iraq. You might as well have been in Iraq. We had we had the the speakers playing gun battles and and call to prayer. We had tires burning. We had people dressed up like you know local Iraqi citizens walking around. It was freaking awesome. It was freaking awesome. That's what you're supposed to do. Damn, I remember that. The first time we were rolling into the Moolab, and it was early in the morning. It was a, it was, it was actually when the blue on blue happened in extreme ownership. But when we were rolling in there, 
I remember rolling in and like there's tires burning in the streets and yeah, I was like, okay, because what does that do? That screws up your nods. And luckily the sun was coming up, but it was still dark outside. But I'm thinking these these Mujahideen fighters know what they're doing. These guys know what they're doing. They're st- and then guess what? So it messes up your night vision when you're staring at these burning fires. And then, then the sun comes up. Well, now there's just black soot smoke everywhere. And you you can guarantee you that when I got back and I was running training, <laughs> you rolled out tires. in the street, we're burning tires. <laughs> totally. Your night vision's going to be all jacked up. And when you're done with the night vision being all jacked up and the sun comes up, guess what? It's going to be black smoke everywhere. One of the best ways to emphasize realism is to assess personnel casualties for improper use of cover. Or, in the case of night exercises, vehicles can be knocked out for unauthorized use of nights. What does that mean? You're putting, you're putting people down. This is like trade debt instructions. I might as well have written this for trade debt to use. <laughs> this is exactly what we did. Oh, you're, you're not standing by cover? Cool, you're dead. Oh, you're going to move out across an open street without any cover fire? Roger that. You're dead. You're down, man. Now let's get this thing figured out. Oh, by the way, your buddy wants to come help you immediately without putting down suppressive fire? Cool, he's dead too. Let's rock and roll. Who wants to figure this out? Who wants to put the cover in cover and move? Dude, you're literally like, re- I wrote that thing down. Fundamental, sound, and realistic. Oh, cool, you're not applying the fundamentals? Good, you're dead. Oh, your tactics aren't sound? Cool, he's gone. Now yeah. what are you gonna do? I mean, I should have a tracker. I should literally just be marking how many times he and you were referring back to the realism that's required. And the beauty of that, especially when you have experiences, it completely takes away that ammunition of, this would never happen. Or, or this is unrealistic. You know, them, the the situ- the unwinnable scenarios, we go, well, this would never happen. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, cool. This would never happen? Watch this. Yep. And the easier the training is, the more acclimated people get to things being easy and the more unwilling they are to believe how difficult they can be. And when your training is realistic, how many times have you told me and everybody the story of Seth's first firefight? Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, Wow. How many firefights have you been in? You must be. And he's like, it was my first one. That was my first one. That <laughs> comes from fundamental sound, realistic training. Yeah. And putting that guy in a position. Where I might not be able to, re- I don't know what this scenario, I can't recreate this scenario. I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but I do know what it's going to be. I do, I do understand how this is going to reveal itself. And the only way to prepare for that is fundamental sound, realistic training over and over and over again. <clears throat> <sighs> Emphasis on night training. Self-sufficiency and confidence are key factors in developing a unit's capability for night operations. And this was just, you know, not going to spend a bunch of time on this because now we've got night vision. But what is more important? What are we talking about? I'm not talking about night vision versus night, not night vision. What I'm talking about is put your troops into hard training situations. That's what you need to do. Put your troops into the most difficult of situations. Because when you're used to fighting at night, pre-night vision, if you're used to fighting at night, number one, yes, you get used to it. Number two, fighting at the day becomes easy. <laughs> it, it makes fighting at the day become easy, and it also gives you a potential advantage if it just so happens that your competition isn't willing to put in the hard training at night. Good. Mm-hmm. You're going to dominate. <laughs> Same thing here. Inclement weather training. I got to read this one, though, because it's funny. Uh, adverse weather will inevitably be encountered in combat and will give rise to problems that can best be solved by experience. It will have an impact on the mobility, on maintenance of vehicle and, and equipment, on observation, on the availability of tactical air support, and, in fact, will hinder tactical operations in every conceivable way. 
Adverse weather conditions can be turned into an asset during battle, however. Boom, there you go. So we're already, look, bad weather, good. Commanders should take every advantage of training under such conditions. Troops who have mastered the problems of operating effectively in spite of the weather can turn low visibility, extreme heat, biting cold, or heavy rain into tactical advantage against an enemy not so well adapted to these adverse conditions. So that's everything you just said. And then it's this. The solution of rainy day schedule is to put on the raincoat and take full advantage of the adverse conditions for profitable field training and experience. Totally legit. You know what's fun? In the, in the teams, when there's giant waves, like when a massive s- storm comes and there's massive just destroyer waves, it's like time to go out and do surf passage with the Zodiacs and just get annihilated. It's so fun. And they do that with bud students. Oh, it's been, oh the waves are freaking just giant. Cool. Get your boats. You're going to do surf passage or sometimes get to get swim. Uh, in the teams, it was, hey, rig up the Zodiacs. We're going to go get some experience in this stuff. That's what absolutely you have to do. If you're in the teams and there's big waves in, in Coronado or Virginia Beach and you're not getting jocked up to go get some, you're wrong. Get your platoon together and get them out there getting after it. (sighs) Cross-training for flexibility. Cross-training is vital to any organization. When your personnel are trained in several jobs, you have achieved depth and capability that may well split the difference between success and failure in combat. Of course, Needless switching of personnel from one job to another is harmful. So cross-train, but that doesn't mean you switch them completely. Training personnel and duties other than their primary MOS, however, will increase your peacetime efficiency and subsequent combat effectiveness. It will also make the individual a more valuable asset to the Army, increases pride and self-confidence, and may well help him qualify for promotion. Boom. A little time spent cross-training will be amply rewarded in the increased overall effectiveness of your unit. Everyone will benefit. Not the least, you as the commander. Just throws that in there. Every once in a while, he's got a little eagle that slips out. <laughs> Every once in a while, we hear it. Got to be something driving this guy to do 45 years in the Army, I reckon. But he likes that. Taking care of the troops also. Little Benny, little side Benny for the man. Chaining... Chain of command, a good organization always has a smoothly functioning chain of command. A sound training program properly supervised can be the primary means of developing the proper functioning of the chain of command, which is also essential in combat. A good commander will guide the development of his unit to ensure that subordinate commanders retain and use their authority and responsibility in any unit. The non-commissioner officer plays a leading role. That's your frontline managers. He must be carefully instructed, given responsibility, and then held accountable. I frequently find squad leaders ignoring their team leaders by issuing orders, giving fire commands, and taking other actions directly with the individual members of the squads. Even worse, I found responsible officers who were condoning these mistakes. The squad leader should use his team leaders to exercise control over the squad at all times. Commanders should supervise an assault, battle, drill, and squad exercise to ensure that squad leaders understand and apply the principle of exercising command over the rifle squad through designated team leaders. So don't jump through the chain of command. Let your subordinate leaders lead. Self-sufficiency and confidence. Confidence to fight semi-independently under conditions of decentralized control is developed by training exercises. Current concepts of warfare. 
visualizing greater dispersion on the battlefield, so we're more spread out, dictate the necessity for units to acquire self-confidence and self-sufficiency. These aspects can be developed in most tactical exercises and can be furthered through realistic use of active aggressor forces. Force-on-force training. That's what we want to do. Ranger-type operations also instill confidence and show the need for self-sufficiency. When out of physical contact with friendly forces or beyond the range of mutual fire support, so we're not covering and moving anymore, the isolated unit becomes a problem. In our training, commanders should recognize the plight of the isolated unit, not by simulating it, but by actually demonstrating it. When the small unit is confronted with an isolated mission, confidence can always be instilled by ensuring that procedures are established for maintaining communications and for rallying to its support if required. Training should be aimed at developing integrated procedures for the employment of Army aviation and Air Force troop carrier troop movements for resupply and medical evacuation. So we have to learn to work independently, but we always have to be able to support each other. If we're alone out on the battlefield, we die. You mean there's a balance there? <laughs> there's a balance. <laughs> there is a little dichotomy. Dude. But cover and move, there's another doctrinal term that I love, is supporting distance. I'm not allowed to be further away from Dave. If, Dave, if I can't defend Dave's position or cover for Dave because he's out of the range of my weapon systems, he's too far away. And that's a perfect example of the cross training he's talking about. I could be an infantryman. Do I need to be an expert on uh, indirect fires? No. I probably don't need to know how to field strip every little. P- but you don't need to know how far that thing can shoot. Where? Because if I get too far away from that supporting element, and I go, well, the reason I got too far away is I didn't know how mortars worked. <laughs> cool. The outcome is your team gets annihilated. So do I need to know every single thing that the mortar platoon commander knows? No, you don't. But you got to know a little bit. You got to know how you and he interact together. And so even that idea of cross-training is if you don't have a sort of a functional understanding inside your company, you used the example before of the salespeople and the customer satisfaction people. If you're a sales lead and the only metric you measure for success is how much you sell and you don't realize that in the return department, that number is the same, you're losing. You're losing because you, there's a piece that you don't, do you have to know everything they know? You don't. And actually you don't have time to know everything they know, but you gotta know enough. You gotta have a, enough understanding of what's going on there to measure the success of the entire organization to include your team, and that requires a little bit of cross-training. And that is a perfect example of how come you need to know something about everybody. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Small unit tactical exercises. Tactical exercises should be as well prepared as training tests. As often as possible, the tactical situation for a field exercise should be laid in the framework of an echelon one or two levels higher than the participating unit. This is desirable to bring into play the necessary intelligence, supply, evacuation, and similar roles of supporting forces that have a bearing on the specific tactical operation. Don't confuse the squad leader, however, by giving him everything that was in the battalion and company commander's orders. That's an interesting little point to bring up is that, well, they're saying that you need to test the subordinate units, you know, subordinate leadership. You, you can't just, I can't, and this is true in the SEAL teams, I can't test myself. If, if I'm relying on me as the platoon leader to test my platoon, it's very difficult to do that. Look, and it can happen, and there's some great platoon leaders that'll be able to do that, but there's platoon leaders that will, they'll pass every test for some reason with flying colors. 
because they're not really being tested. So it's good when you are utilizing the chain of command and some of the some of the elements above to test the elements below. So that's that makes sense. Again, he always emphasizes all exercises should be conducted under simulated combat conditions. I think we've cu- covered that one enough. Despite limitations on our capabilities to conduct field exercises and combined arms training, I am convinced that commanders can always devise ways and means of achieving essential training objectives. I'll give you an example of that. We would want to have close air support in our urban environment for training. We'd want to have an AC-130 overhead. We'd want to have F-18s overhead. We'd want to have a Marine Corps fighter squadron ready to come and drop bombs for us. That doesn't always happen. In fact, it's very rare that we would get those live assets. So what would we do? We would either bring a pilot or we'd bring a JTAC, a person that was qualified to call, and we'd put them up on one of the buildings in our mount facility and give them a radio. And and look, it's, it's almost the same thing. You know, you got a guy that understands how pilots talk and he imitates a pilot talking on the radio. And then we would put up simulated explosions to go off. When, if they dropped the bomb in the right spot, we would blow we'd blow something up and they'd get that they'd get that satisfaction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, there was a company we were using that had little model airplanes. They were actually big model airplanes, but the model airplanes would fly over and then explosions would happen. We kind of went the distance to make the training realistic. Launching these, you know, F-18s that would come down and strafe the city and explosions would go off. It's pretty good. But that's a great way to do it. And what does it cost? For me to give the radio to one of my JTACs and stand on a building, it costs zero dollars. Zero. What does it cost to get an F-18 to give me, or a section of F-18s to give me a few hours of support? It costs, what, $100,000? Yeah. How much much fuel do you burn in an F-18 in an hour? 10,000 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Check. Check. Uh, 